You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We are in our fourth week of this series called Vulnerability. Um, It's a uh, tour through the second letter to the Corinthians by Paul. And so far we've learned a number of things. One is that nobody likes vulnerability. (laughs) We don't like like, but we seek it in other people. We want somebody else to be open, but we're kind of afraid to be ourselves. And we've learned that it's really not weakness. Vulnerability isn't weakness, it is openness. Openness to others, openness to the, to the spirit, openness to um, new experiences, and yes, sometimes openness to pain. And we've also studied um, how uncomfortable that can be, but how comforting it is to know that we've got a God who has chosen to be vulnerable towards us, and how we can, because of that, have confidence in this life to be open, and that that's really what strength looks like and how it's easy to lose heart going through all of this, but God calls us to live wholeheartedly. So today, we're going to work through chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you a cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for their sake and was raised." From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded according to the fle- Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Reconciliation. That word, reconcile, to be reconciled, reconciliation came up five times, five times in just those last few verses. And uh, when Paul repeats something that often, it means it must be important, okay? And so we're going to be looking at that. God's plan for you, God's plan for all of us, is that he wants not simply that you are forgiven, I know so often in church we think, okay, I'm forgiven, that's it, moving on. That's the start. That's the start. What he really wants is you to be restored, reconciled, that your relationships are all brought together and repaired. Not just forgiven, but full restoration. 
So I guess the question this morning, you can answer it yourself. I don't expect you to have to like say it in front of everyone else right now, but do you have some relationships that need repair? Yeah, I think we all do. Zoe is laughing on that one. Uh, okay. And that is kind of God's work from the beginning. So when Adam and Eve broke faith with God, not trusting him, um, they basically also broke their relationship with each other. You can tell because they started blaming each other. They started calling on each other. They started pointing the finger elsewhere. They st you could just see that. All their relationships were broken. And so, like we have said from the beginning of Thrive, it's all about relationships. That's what it's about. The church isn't about programs, and the church isn't about numbers, and the church isn't about being an education center alone, and not, definitely not an entertainment complex or a self-help movement, okay? I like what David Tripp, David Paul, Paul David Tripp wrote in a book, um, the church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gather to know and love him better, and learn to love others as he designed. Flawed people, that's who, I see in I, that's who you see in front of you too, right? So five times this letter comes up, this word reconciliation comes up, and we're going to study these three things, what it is, why it matters, and how to be reconciled. So first of all, what it is, and if you know me, we're going to go to the Greek word, because often um, it's amazing that uh, in God's providence that the New Testament was mainly written in Greek, because the Greek language is just very, um, very technical, profound. Uh, when I studied Greek in college, it felt like I was studying calculus. Some of you like calculus. <laughs> Yes, but Greek is sort of like that. It's very technical, it's very precise, and there are different words for different things. And so the Greek word for reconciliation that we have in the English is kata alasso. And the kata is a pre uh, preposition that basically means right to the point. Like, we're coming together right here, right now. And the word lasso is to change, to transform. And often this was used in kind of the exchange of money to bring it to the point the deal is made. But often when it was dealing with people, it's when two parties who are far apart come together right here, right now, and are fully at peace with each other. That's what reconcile means. It means to change from enemies to friends. It's one of the most important words, actually, in the New Testament. And in, uh, it's a distinctly Christian idea. That's why Latasha Morrison, in her book, Be the Bridge, Pursuing God's Heart for Racial Reconciliation, writes this. Repairing what is broken is a distinctly biblical concept, which is why, as people of faith, we should be leading the way into redemption, restoration, and reconciliation. And reconciliation isn't just kind of getting to even Stephen. You know, it's like, okay, I feel okay about this, and you do too. It's not simply balancing some financial equation. It's not a tit for tat that we both feel like we've kept score and everything's okay. 
Reconciliation is also not saying, no problem. I mean, I really get tired of hearing that phrase sometimes because just say, you're welcome instead, because it was some work. You know, hey, thank you for that. No problem. Didn't mean anything to me is what is what's really mean. It's like, no, wait a minute. You took time to do that. I want to thank you for it. Say, you're welcome, but no problem. Well, there's problems in this world. There's big problems. And most of our relationships, you just put two people together for five minutes. There's probably going to be a problem. Three opinions to start with. It's not dismissing, you know, conflict. You know, it's like, oh, no, everything's okay. Um, to be reconciled to someone, you don't always have to be giving in to them to keep the peace. Too often, I think Christians feel like that. In fact, it might be more important to be insistent that you work through the issue. And that's why reconciliation is not an easy thing. It's hard. It's hard to achieve this holistic word and what it all means. It's working through in a relationship with people until you all feel connected, whole, at peace, you're open. And yes, that word vulnerability comes up, that you feel comfortable being vulnerable and open with someone to let your guard down. It's when people have a deep affection, when people actually want to be together, rather than, oh, we got to go to so-and-so's house tonight. It's like, oh. We're coming over to John's house tonight. Lisa's going to be there. That's the good thing. <laughs> She's the one you want to see. But the fact is that we actually feel like we're family, and we're good at that. It's not a business relationship. It's getting to true friendships. And you don't get a reconciliation in a court of law. You might get a settlement, but you get reconciliation around a dinner table and in the living room. That's where we experience it. So do I have to go into the second point, why is it important, reconciliation? Well, I am anyways. What? <laughs> I got slides for it. You know I was going there. So um, why it matters. This is what I said. Adam and Eve were created for these close, intimate relationships with each other, with God. God wanted, as we see in um, Genesis 2 and 3, he wanted to walk in the cool of the day, in the garden with Adam and Eve, which is just like, what kind of God would want to have company with Adam? That's how he made you. That's why he made you, to give you his love and affection and his attention. And yet, that's what broke. And you can see it by how they responded to each other. What broke there? Another word for, quote, sin, I think would be better sometimes, is to understand the effect of sin. And that word is alienation. And it kind of sounds like it means, right? It's where I am alien to you. I'm a stranger or estranged. And you are alien to me. But more so, I'm even estranged or alien or not at home in myself. I'm uncomfortable with me now because I feel kind of awkward and absolutely awkward with God. I'm not sure what to make of him, what to do with him. And you could see that with Adam and Eve as they covered up, they hid, they made excuses, and they blamed. 
other possibilities of experiences of alienation in our world are things like being feeling broken in a relationship or estranged or where you see anger or fear or disgust or tension or judgment or vindictiveness or revenge or resentment where people are ticked off or cut off or outraged or condemning or apathetic or closed off or shut down. We got that going big time right now in our culture. And you might say, well, that's great. Yeah, I understand. Those people over there, they're really, you know, and all that stuff. But I'm, you know, I'm pretty well, I think I'm in friendly terms with everybody I know. I think we've gotten comfortable with alienation. Okay? I would argue that. You're comfortable with it. You're just used to it now that, for instance, um, you have neighbors. You probably don't even know their first names. Right? And you go like, I'm comfortable with that, just saying and walking by. Being smiling, waving, you know, doing that. You're driving down the road. You see somebody walking on the sidewalk, and it's this, and you just keep going. We're used to it so much that we are disconnected from people. Our society is a lonely nation where we're all together lonely and we're in big crowds, but we don't even know each other. We're estranged from each other. We're used to it. And the Bible says, God says, one of the two great commandments is to love your neighbor as yourself. How in the world do you love a neighbor you don't even know their first name? That isn't being reconciled. You've got coworkers that you probably tolerate because you have to. That isn't reconciled. Or you avoid, even more so. You have relatives you feel a bit awkward to have around. Why do I know this is the case? I'm probably that relative. My relatives are awkward to have around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm the strange, you know. Uh, yeah, that's John. You know what he does. Yeah. And you might be saying, well, that's, yeah, I, yeah, I've got a few of those things. But it's really, you know, if I'm at odds with people, it's not my fault. I've done my part. I'm pleasant with them. They're the ones that have been grumpy. I have good reason to keep my distance. I can clearly see why this relationship is in that shape, and it's them, right? Guess what you've just proven? You've just justified yourself in staying alienated, which means it's not just them. Uh, the Arbinger Institute wrote a book called The Anatomy of Peace, and um, this is how they put it. The more sure I am that I'm right, the more likely I will be actually be mistaken. My need to be right makes it more likely that I'll be wrong. Likewise, the more sure I am that I'm mistreated, the more likely I, miss, I am to miss the ways that I am mistreating others, myself. My need for justification obscures the truth. So my rationalizations are actually part of my alienation from people and my unreconciled relationships. I am always thinking that I'm right and I have to prove myself to be right. That means you have to be wrong. And that's the way it's going to be. Isn't that true? And how do I know this is the case? 
It's not just with other human beings. In fact, um, the relationship that the we're, we're born the most alienated from, the more fearful of, the most haunted by, the, the one that we're uh, questioning the most or challenging the most or we want to get out of the most is our relationship with God. It's interesting. Uh, in another of Paul's letters, the book to Colossians, he says this, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That's how that verse goes. You know, God, being God, is the ultimate good. There is nothing but love and truth and righteousness and perfection in God. There is nothing he has ever done wrong. That is kind of the basic belief that there is a God. And yet, how often, you've probably heard, I've wondered and I've struggled with that. And you say, or you've heard people say, how can I, I can't believe in a God who's good with all this that he's allowing in this world. Thomas Nagel, he's a uh, retired professor from Columbia University and a philosopher and um, an avowed atheist. And he, um, but he is also very honest about things. And Thomas Nagel said, we've got a cosmic authority problem. He writes, it isn't that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition. In other words, any authority. Have you noticed how people don't like authority? like at all. They want to use authority against others, but they don't want it when it's the rules and they're under the authority. It's kind of the don't tell me what to do, but I'm going to tell you where to go. <laughs> That's the human condition. God, don't tell me what to do, but I'm telling you where to go. Get away from me. Let me live my life my way. We are so trigger happy, so reactionary when any authority comes ticked off, hostile, feistly independent, stubborn. You can come up with all the words, probably, and describe other people and describe our culture, actually. We almost celebrate it in the American culture to be independent and feisty and I'm going to do my own way. And, you know, Frank Sinatra, I did it my way, right? And our way is to justify ourselves and to always be right and never admit a fault and always put a spin on it and blame other people and find a loophole. And in addition, Paul in Colossians and also here in 2 Corinthians will say, we're blind to this in ourselves. We see it in others. We don't see it in ourselves. It's kind of like how uh, Paul said, um, or Jesus said, excuse me, wow, why are you judging your neighbor for the speck in their eye when you got a log coming out of your own? Here you got a telephone pole, boom, you can't see, and you're looking at this tiny piece of sand. That's the human condition. Or in 2 Corinthians 4, 
just the chapter before this, Paul said, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. The God of this world is not the God of creation. The God of this world is the <laughs> prince of demons, the father of lies. He is now the one that's kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes and running things, and you see all of this, keeping everything alienated, keeping everyone unreconciled, keeping all these things going and everybody comfortable with it, enough that they don't even recognize the situation they're in. So if that is our human condition, if we're all kind of stuck in that, me included, all the time, how in the world do we ever get to the point of being reconciled, right? How to be reconciled. This is what's so shockingly amazing about our God. And James kind of mentioned it in our prayer before that God chose us, right? That God makes the first move. It's so amazing that God, who needs nothing, you know, God is the one who could wait until someone Someone among the seven, eight billion people or nine billion people who have ever existed on this planet just looking for someone, just one person to finally come to their senses and decide that maybe they need to do something about being reconciled to God. He could have waited. He's got an eternity to wait, right? We don't. We don't have an eternity to wait. And so he did not wait for us to make the first move. In fact, he knows better about our human condition than us to make the first move. So in Colossians, Paul went on from that phrase that we shared before, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he, God, has now reconciled in his body Jesus of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Or in 2 Corinthians 5 that we just read at the beginning, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. He doesn't say God and some human being who decided finally to get there, meet him halfway. There is no halfway in how we got reconciled to God. There is no 10% of the way. You come this far, I'll come this far. God is the one who reconciles, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of it. How in the world did he do this? God chose, here's the amazing thing, to go beyond being simply right. Of course he's right. But he wanted to be more than just right. He did nothing wrong. There's no cause of the problems in this world that, I, that are his. He was not content, though, simply being righteous about every one of his judgments. God so loved that God yearns for such a relationship, not because he needs a relationship with any of us, but because he knows we need him, and he is the source of life and love and goodness. And so God does the unthinkable, the unfathomable, the unexpected, the shocking, the totally free gift of giving us our 
our reconciliation as a gift. And Paul explains it this way in our last verse in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, not for God's sake, but for your sake, my sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus didn't even know what it's like to sin. He never did. He was the perfect human and the perfect son of God who doesn't, he wasn't even familiar with what it felt like. or ex- He never got close. He was tempted but never sinned. He understands, but he never experienced being cut off from his father in any form. And yet, God who... In Christ, knew no sin, he made him to be, not to just feel sin, but to be sin, and to be what sin all caused, which brings about death. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Upon the cross, he was crushed. The devil delighted in what was going on. Sin tortured him. Death defeated him. And God, his father, raised him on the third day. And because of his all-encompassing sacrifice, God reconciles us to him. You know, there's really no explanation for it. I can't explain the miracle that it is. I can, because it's beyond comprehension. I would never do anything like this for, you know, my enemies, right? God does it all the time for his enemies. But I can proclaim it, even though I can't explain it. And because God chose to reconcile himself to us, because Jesus Christ has taken our place, He now has turned us enemies into his friends. And we can be open and vulnerable to him because he opened himself up to us. And as Paul will state in this letter, to be reconciled to God, that means accept what he has done. Receive it as the gift that it is. Be astounded and amazed and celebrate it and cherish it and hold on to it and then extend it to others. Extend it to others. You see, why did the church explode across the Christian world in the first couple of centuries? It was just another, quote, religion. It's because, as Timothy Keller said, the Christian teaching on forgiveness and turning the other cheek created a community of peacemaking, reconciliation, and bridge building. That's what we're about. The early Christians didn't wait for others to ask for it or deserve it. In fact, just like the the Christian church, it's not about us being right and they are wrong and therefore we're content with that. It's the fact that we're going to extend this to our enemies and to the people who would even persecute us. And that's what they did. They loved their enemies when they were in the Colosseum and placed upon (laughs) the cross or fed to the wild beasts. They still loved their enemies and felt and did what reconciliation meant. Forgiveness is just the start. 
it allows us to now extend friendship to people that we'd never consider to be friends. Now, if you're wondering, but my life feels, well, you know, it's good, but it kind of feels flat. Everything's okay, but not great. It might be because there might be some unreconciled, cool, safe relationships you've got. In that book, The Anatomy of Peace, that I quoted before, says this, most wars between individuals are of the cold rather than the hot variety. Lingering resentment, for example, grudges long held, resources clutched rather than shared, help not offered. These are the acts of war that most threaten our homes and workplaces. Maybe this is, um, maybe, you know, I've stopped preaching a while ago, and now I'm meddling in your lives, I know. <laughs> it's meddling time, right? I am meddling in mine, too. Because Paul, I think, in this text to the Corinthians is asking them the question and us the question, are you going to be part of what God's doing in this world or not? Because what God's doing is he's reconciling us to himself. And he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. You want to be a part of that? It gets very concrete. If you haven't thought of some people already by this point in time in the sermon that you go, hmm, yeah, that relationship ain't quite where it should be. Now you probably have. I'm there too. You know, when Jesus, at the end of his Sermon on the Mount, he has the story of the, the man or the person who built his house on the sand and the one who built it on the rock. You know the difference between the two? Not just, you know, the meta he who hears my word but doesn't put it into practice builds on the sand. The one who hears my word and puts it into practice builds on the rock. The difference isn't that, oh, this person heard it and this person didn't. It's the difference is which one put it into practice. And Paul is looking at the Corinthians today and said, be reconciled to God. Be ambassadors of reconciliation. Get, get involved in what God is doing in this world right now. And that is a very concrete, specific situation. The people that you live next to the co-workers that you have, the members of your family and relatives. Let's pray about that right now. And then ask God to just so overwhelm us with our reconciliation, the fact that he made me who an enemy of God, alienated from him, fighting him, defiant, hostile, um, squirming under his scrutiny, how he turned that around by opening up his heart, showing his full vulnerability, exposing his love upon the cross, doing everything for me when I deserve nothing, that that melts my heart so that my heart may soften and be open to others. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time today and this message. This is... Um, it's much more than just being forgiven, Lord. We want to be ambassadors, as this text says, of your reconciliation in this world, where you turn enemies into friends, where you bring strangers and make them best buddies, where you, Lord, 
um, open yourself up to a world that would crucify you, Lord Jesus, and yet you still would love. We pray, Lord God, the power of that gospel would so permeate us that we would receive it ourselves. And help us, Lord, in our brokenness, in our feebleness, in our uh, fallibility, to extend that reconciliation to others, to work towards the messy, difficult task of reconciling, of becoming better friends. We pray, Lord, for our fellowship itself, that it would deepen. We're not looking for quantity necessarily, Lord. We're looking for the quality that you would have us as your disciples. You, Lord Jesus, had 12 disciples and then dozens of others, but not thousands following you for your three years. Crowds were there once in a while, Lord, yes, we know. But you invested yourself in quality relationships, and we pray that you would help us with that kind of quality here at Thrive. But that we too would move out from, Lord, this place into our neighborhoods to develop those kind of quality relationships you would want. And that one day we look forward to the day when the whole of creation will be reconciled to you, Lord, when everything will be under your lordship. When you, the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world, Lord, will reign supreme and your love will be known and the knowledge the true knowledge of God will cover this whole creation like the waters cover the ocean. We know it's risky, Lord, and you risked all. We know it's risky, but we know that you will walk with us into those relationships, Lord. Open us up to them now. Lord, we lift up to you today some of the needs within our congregation and world. We specifically lift up to you Otto as he has broken his arm and we pray, Lord God, that you bring your healing and protect him through the surgery that will come to pin that in place. Alleviate the pain this day, Lord. We lift up to you as well my mother, Arlene, as she, um, hospice has said, we're in the last, um, well, the last few months, um, Lord. She's ready to be with you, Jesus. She knows your love. She knows you, and we thank you for that. Give us all peace when these things are faced. Lord, we pray for our um, campus ministry and our outreach. I pray, Lord, for our barbecue this week, for the hangout tonight, for the opportunities to live that reconciliation out that we have in Jesus to just celebrate your goodness and to be at peace with each other and with you. Help us to, to party like you did, Jesus, <laughs> with sinners and tax collectors and others uh, to celebrate your goodness and grace. And as we are going to celebrate who you are, Jesus, and how you came to us uh, through the Lord's Supper, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness that you, that we know, <laughs> we, we'd only deceive ourselves if we're right. We know we've been wrong. We have sinned against you and one another. Forgive us, renew us, and reconcile us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Prepare us to receive you openly and freely, Lord, in the Lord's Supper and with all that you give us. And, Lord, bless our ministry this fall. May it grow and prosper as you see fit, not as what we just want, but your will be done. All this we pray in Jesus' precious name. 
Amen.